0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We started studying through the book of Matthew last week. We looked at Matthew, chapter 1. This week we'll look at Matthew, chapter 2. Uh, as we turn here, why don't you please uh, pray with me as we come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come before you to recognize how much we need you in this moment. Uh, we come to your word. Uh, we want to hear from you. And uh, we know that very often our our ears are dull and our hearts are hard and our minds are without understanding. And so Father, we just pray, coming and asking that you would that you would enlighten us, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would soften our hearts, so that we would hear and we would understand, and by your Spirit we would be changed. That we would see more fully the gospel of your Son and his glory, and as we behold the glory of Jesus, we would be transformed into that glory from one degree of glory to another, as you promise in your word. Father, be with us now. Pour out your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, the whole chapter. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold... that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, I don't like to preach on weakness. It's not a theme that is, uh, that is easy for me to preach about, and I think God intentionally makes it hard for me. You know, I'm, I'm in many ways so proud and self reliant. I, I want to live out of my strengths. I want to control my environment. And then I come to a sermon about weakness and I'm undone. And I hope this passage, uh, I hope this passage this morning troubles you. I hope that it troubles you the way that it troubled me all week long. And I encourage you to, to chat with me afterwards. Uh, because you may have some questions about some of the things that I say, I, I can't say everything there is to say uh, in in one sermon. And so, uh, if you have questions or if you're confused about something, feel free to ask me afterwards. I'd love to I'd love to talk with you about it. Well, Matthew chapter two is about how Jesus is a threat. It's about how Jesus is a threat to those who are in authority and to all who, who try to use their strengths to control the world around them. Matthew 2 is about Jesus' authority in contrast to the authority structures of this world. It's about how the world works one way, but Jesus' kingdom works in the exact opposite way. So we're going to do some comparison and contrasting this morning. We're going we're to look at uh, the kingdoms of this world. As we look at Herod, and then we're going to look at the kingdom of Jesus. You can see in your bulletin there's an outline uh, on on the back there at some point, and uh, there are two main points: uh, the kingdoms of this world and the and Jesus' kingdom. I, I want to flesh those out for you right away, though, uh, before we even get into things. I'm going to give you two two sentences for each of those points. So if you're interested, you can write them down if you uh, like to do that kind of thing. Um, and the two points are these. First, about the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world run by the, by the raw use of power in order to control, which leads to fear and manipulation and anger. I know that's long, so I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, the, the kingdoms of this world run by the raw use of power in order to control which leads to fear and manipulation and anger. But the kingdom of Jesus runs on weakness in order to serve, and it leads to worship. Right. So there, there are two kingdoms. They have two different methods, right? two different ways of working, two different purposes, and, and two different outcomes. We're going to look at these two kingdoms and unpack that a little bit. First, the, the kingdoms of this world run... By uh, the raw use of power. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the, the, the method of this world is, is typically to make a show of force. When you want to get something done, you, you make a show of force. Uh, the way authorities work, even, uh, think about this. The way authorities work is by threatening people into compliance. Now, now I know that seems maybe a little harsh, but typically it's true. Uh, think about it. Governments, we're told in Romans 13, have the power of the sword, And if you disobey those governments, you should be afraid, says Paul. Authorities are set up by God to to bear the sword in order to maintain order instead of anarchy. And this is the power that all genuine authority has. Governments have have power over property. They have power over life. They have power over death. They, 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 They find those who do wrong at times. They put people in jail and at times even execute people for serious crimes. People obey the government out of fear. If you still don't believe me, if that seems just too far-fetched, think about this. Why do you slow down when you see police officers on the highway? (laughs) Because he bears the sword, or in this case, he has the power to write you a speeding ticket, and and he has authority over us and over our possessions, and speeding tickets can be costly, and so we, we slow down. Now, we want police officers, right, to legitimately use force to protect. Um, if a police officer had no ability to use force, they would be useless. Right? I mean, just think about it. If a police officer couldn't write you a ticket, couldn't arrest you, couldn't summon you to court, you wouldn't stop, right? When you saw the lights flashing behind you, you'd just keep going because, because his, his use of force backs up his authority. That's the way authority works. Because they have the power of death, broadly speaking, right? They have they can take your money, right? They can take your our freedom, they can take our life. Now, sadly, this way of approaching life by seeking to control by the use of raw power, it's not limited to authorities, is it? We actually do this every day. You know, the the way we get ahead in life in this world, we think, right, is by using our strengths. And uh, this is the way we get ahead vocationally, this is the way we get ahead socially, right? We, we begin to think that we can control life, we can control our careers, we can control what people think of us, we can control our relationships, maybe even, we even think we can control the people around us if we just throw our weight around. And, and maybe that strength for you, I mean, it could be any number of things, right? I mean, it could be money, it could be beauty, it could be intelligence, it could be social status, but our goal is to try to be the strongest, the fastest, the smartest, the wealthiest. Right? Because as people in this world, we, we use these worldly assets to control the world so that it goes our way. Deborah and I sometimes watch the TV show, Frasier. Uh, maybe it hasn't been on uh, television, actual television for a long time. But, but we, we sometimes watch the TV show, Frasier. And uh, Frasier is this radio psychologist in Seattle, Uh, And uh, he thinks that uh, because he's a radio host that his name carries some kind of clout. He thinks he has a reputation for himself, and he's always trying to get into fancy restaurants on his name. See, he knows that status carries a kind of power in this world. And so he calls up restaurants and he says, this is Dr. Fraser Crane from the radio can I get a, you know, a table for two? And of course it never works, which is what makes it so funny. But, but he's, he, he's recognizing something in the world, isn't he? That certain things in this world, certain powers, certain strengths allow us to manipulate the world for our own ends. And it's not just limited to kings or governments, but it's something that we're all actually trained in from childhood. And we'll, we'll see more of that as we go along, but we'll see this particularly in Herod. we come to uh, Matthew chapter 2, and there are so many details we have questions about. Who are these wise men? Where do they come from? Uh, Why a star? And uh, for time's sake, I'm actually not going to go into that. Uh, If you're interested, again, you could ask me afterwards. A lot of good questions. But uh, here's what's clear. There are these Gentile uh, wise men, or the, the word is magi, from which we get the word magic, uh, they were some kind of astrologer or something like that. And and they've come to worship the one who's born king of the Jews. Gentile magi come to worship the one born king of the Jews. And at this, Herod is troubled. Why is Herod troubled? <clears throat> the, the news is one has been born king of the Jews. And notice verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. See, Herod is the king of the Jews. He, he was appointed king by Rome. And so what lies behind his fear is kind of the nature of, of Herod's authority. You know, as we saw, a worldly authority, it's, it works off the, the use of power. If your authority, though, is based on power, what that means is if somebody stronger than you comes along, you are threatened. Herod is threatened by the mere mention of a baby born to be king. Why? Because his authority is based on on power in, in this way, and that means it's always fragile. Herod knows that his authority could be lost. He could be overthrown and another king set up in his place. There can only be one king. And any claim to kingship then is a threat. So Herod knows this. He knows his power, his authority is fragile, as all human authority in one sense is. He's threatened by the mere possibility of another king. But Herod's not the only one scared in that verse, right? All Jerusalem is troubled with him. Why is that? Why is everybody else afraid? Well, Herod is afraid of losing his power. Jerusalem is afraid of Herod actually using his power, right? See, they they know how unpredictable Herod is. In fact, uh, according to one writer on New Testament Times, someone in Herod's day supposedly observed that it would be better to be Herod's pig than a member of his family, since as a Jew, Herod would not kill and eat a pig. Herod was known for killing his wives and children because he thought they were a threat to his throne. And so if Herod is upset, watch out. But think about this. I mean, Herod is, is, is threatened. He's afraid because of the, the news of this one-born king of the Jews. When do you feel intimidated? I mean, like Herod, when are you threatened by someone else? Who is it that might walk in the room, and when they walk in the room, you, you start to get antsy? Why, right? You know, if the kingdoms of this world run on sort of raw power, if that's the way that this present world order works, when someone comes along who has more power than I do, I will feel threatened. And so if I'm strong, I feel threatened when someone stronger comes along. Right? If, 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 if I'm a, a woman who's beautiful and uses her beauty to try to control others, uh, she will feel threatened uh, by one more beautiful than her. Um, if you seek to control others by being smarter than them, then you'll be intimidated by people who are smarter yet. Uh, if you're the cool kid on the playground who everybody follows, right? you're going to be threatened when some cooler kid comes along and starts to generate a following. You get, you get the idea. I don't want to belabor the point. But, but we, we, when we look at our strengths and use our strengths to try to control the world, if somebody else comes along who's stronger, that's intimidating. That's scary. And what this means is, actually, we, we end up in a life of slavery. Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 2. If we're, if we're afraid of death, right? if we're, whether that's physical death or social death or political death or whatever, right? if we're afraid of not having life to its fullest, um, we're always striving either to maintain control of the world around us or trying to appease the one who is in control so that we might have life. So we become slaves, slaves to this fear of death. Well, Herod hears about this newborn king. He, he finds out from the religious leaders uh, that the king is to be born in Bethlehem. And uh, he summons the wise men and he, he sends them in the right direction, saying uh, in verse eight, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod, of course, wants to maintain his power, right? He wants to maintain his authority. He doesn't want to lose it to some uh, upstart king. And so he finds out from the religious leaders uh, where this uh, king is to be born, and he seeks to, to manage or control this situation right, through his deceit. You know, if you're trying to gain uh, power, rarely can you be honest about it, and uh, even if you're Herod. And, and what's interesting is by lying, he really shows how little power he actually has. That's, that's what a lie is. We're trying to cover over our lack of power. He can't force the wise men to tell him where the baby king is. Right? They're, they're free moral agents. They can do as they please. He can't force them, so he lies. He says that he wants to worship the new king as well. He's trying to deceive them, to manipulate them into telling him what he wants to know. By lying, he's, he's covering over his lack of power, his impotence to do what he really wants to do, which is off this king right away. Herod's fear right, shows how, how fragile his power is, and his lies show how weak his power really is. And then we come to his anger, right? I mean, we'll come back to the wise men in a minute, but for now, uh, look at what Herod does next. Uh, the, the wise men, well, they're, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they skip town uh, in secret. And Herod catches on to them, and, and then we have verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Why is Herod so mad? His manipulative power play didn't work. Right? He, he lied to cover his lack of power to try to force the mi- wise men or manipulate the wise men uh, to do what he wanted, but his lie didn't work. His lie was powerless. Now, if you're a control freak and somebody throws your powerlessness in your face, right, that's a recipe for disaster. You get angry, so Herod is furious. And in his fury, Herod does the only thing he knows how to do, He kills all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. He he rages against his powerlessness. But consider the absurdity of this, right? This mature political ruler throws a temper tantrum and kills two-year-olds out of fear that they might steal his throne. And if nothing shows how threatened Herod is, this does. And yet Herod is trying to make a show of force. He's covering over his weakness again and the fragility of his authority with a show of power. The world equates authority with power and the use of force. And so Herod seeks to secure his fragile power in this way. You know, sadly, I have to confess, I do this all the time. I do it all the time as a parent. Right? When I get angry with my boys, uh, normally it's because I realize how powerless I am to make them do what I want, right? And that frustrates me because I want to be able to make them do what I want, but I can't, right? And so I get angry. I get angry at them. I get angry at my powerlessness. And, and I think if I just raise my voice, maybe then I can change their hearts. Isn't that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> right? But that's what we do. You know, if I just assert myself a little more, then maybe I can make happen what I want to happen. That's the logic of this world, right? That's the logic of raising your voice. If I say it a little louder, then maybe I can, I can make things happen. The kingdoms of this world run on the raw use of power. That's the way this age works. We, we use that power to control, which end up, ends up leading to, to fear and to manipulation and to anger. But Jesus' kingdom runs on weakness in order to serve and it leads to worship. Now, before Herod's uh, temper tantrum, God had warned Joseph in verse 13. The wise men leave, and uh, verse 13 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And Joseph uh, rises, takes the child and his mother by night, and flees to Egypt. And what's interesting is actually verse 15. Verse 15 says, Uh, And they remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What's interesting about that? It's odd. It's odd because Jesus doesn't come out of Egypt in these verses. He comes out later, but not here. He doesn't come out of Egypt here. He comes out of Israel and goes into Egypt. To fulfill the prophecy out of Egypt have I called my son. It's backwards, right? It's upside down. Everything's turned on its head. And and actually, as you read the story, you realize everything is turned on its head. There's a a whole upside down exodus going on here. It's upside down because Israel has become the Egypt out of which Joseph must flee. Herod, the king of the Jews, is really acting like Pharaoh. Uh, Remember, Pharaoh had his henchmen in the exodus Right, the magicians who tried to imitate uh, the plagues. Well, Herod has his own henchmen, the religious leaders, and the great irony here is that the Gentile magicians are the ones who acknowledge the Lord. And it's all backwards. And just as Pharaoh murdered the children of Israel in Exodus chapters uh, 1 and 2, now Herod, the king of Israel, is murdering them as well. Everything has been turned on his head. Our notion of authority is upside down. But Jesus comes to put it right. You know, whereas worldly authority runs by this use of of force, Jesus comes in weakness. Herod attempts to hide his weakness with a show of power. Jesus comes and he veils his power with a show of weakness. And think about Jesus here. The religious leaders uh, talk about Christ in verse 6. Herod calls them and says, you know, where is the Christ to be born? The religious leaders talk about him, and they call him a ruler and a shepherd of God's people. They're quoting Micah chapter 5. And if it, elsewhere in Micah 5, as you go on, uh, we're told that this king who's to come, his coming is from of old, it's from ancient of days. Uh, Micah 5 says, because of his shepherding, God's flock would dwell secure. Uh, For the shepherd shall be great to the ends of the earth, Micah says, and he shall be their peace. And so Jesus is this, this great king whose coming is from of old, whose authority has been promised, who's going to be great to the ends of the earth, who will bring peace. Well, how does this Jesus, this great coming king, exercise that authority? He's born as a baby. The picture of weakness and vulnerability Uh, look again at verse 13 the angel says to joseph rise take the child and his mother and flee to egypt okay here's the the one who will have all authority in heaven and on earth given to him and he flees before herod What, what kind of authority is that what kind of power and yet really he doesn't flee right why doesn't he flee because he can't flee he's two years old or younger And so verse 13, the angel says to Joseph, rise, take the child. And verse 14 says, then he rose and took the child. You see, Jesus at this point is so weak and so vulnerable, he can't even run to Egypt on his own. He has to be taken. Herod, whose authority is actually weak and fragile, attempts to hide that weakness with manipulation and force. Jesus, whose authority is powerful and secure from from of old, from ancient of days, he veils that authority in weakness. Even his eventual arrival in Nazareth at the end of the chapter is so he can hide from Archelaus, Herod's brutal son. Herod could do a lot, couldn't he? I mean, in one way, the Herods of this world always can. He assembled the religious leaders of his day to give them the answers that he wanted. He summoned the wise men. He attempted to manipulate them for his purposes. He slaughtered babies in Bethlehem without any consequence. The authorities of this world have the power of death, right? The government has the power over physical death, right, to pardon or to execute justly or unjustly. Your professors have the power over your academic life, right, to pass you or to fail you. People in social spheres, right, who have some kind of status have power maybe over your social life, right, to, to, uh, to spurn you or to bring you in. The authorities of this life have power, the power of death. Uh, Jesus has that power, right? Um, He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But Jesus has another power as well. He not only has the power of death, but Jesus has power over death, doesn't he? Now, we read this morning in Sunday School from John 17, and John 17, too, tells us that the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh to give life. Right? That's something an authority can't really do, but that Jesus can. He can give life, eternal life, is what John 17, too, says. This is really the great reason that Herod had to be afraid of Jesus, and he didn't even know it. Herod's power of death was powerless over Jesus, And Jesus didn't just come in weakness. He came in weakness, but he lived in weakness, and then he he died in weakness. Another ruler of this world would one day put Jesus to death. He exercised his authority unjustly, but it was a a, a God-given authority. Jesus himself said so. He exercised his authority, though Jesus was wrongly accused, though the trial was a sham, this ruler finished what Herod started and nailed Jesus to a cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead. When Jesus died on the cross, he he went there for a very specific purpose. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin. The Bible says to suffer the penalty for sin, to ransom us from sin's penalty. Again, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and we have sinned, we deserve death. And Jesus, what he came to do was suffer that death in our place. Of course, once the penalty for a crime is paid, the offender is free to go. Jesus, being the eternal son of God, suffered the full wrath of God for uh, for the sins of God's people on the cross. But having paid that penalty, he rose from the dead. And in that moment, Herod's power was broken. When Jesus rose from the dead, he he negates the powers of this world because their only power in the end is to threaten you. And the ultimate threat is the threat of death. But death no longer has the final word. Think about what this means. I mean, what it means is that whatever threats you may get in this life, Whether they're threats to your social life or your economic life or your academic life or your political life or your physical life, whatever one might do to you, however they might kill you, put you in social exile, academic probation, right, or the literal grave, death does not have the final word. The authorities of this world have been rendered powerless by the resurrection, This is actually what Paul says in part in in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says that God set aside the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross, and as a result, the rulers and authorities of this life have been disarmed. In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus, we're told, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death we're subjected to lifelong slavery. See, by his death, he frees us from the fear of death, and so he frees us from slavery. We've been freed from slavery to the world and to the devil because uh, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, if death is the, the great power this world has, whatever kind of death that might be, political, social, economic, whatever, if death is the great power that this world has, But Jesus has conquered death in the resurrection, then the powers of this world have become powerless. If we have lived as slaves, always fearing the worst that this world might bring, but Jesus has conquered the worst this world might bring, then we've been freed from that slavery. We we no longer need to fear. We no longer have to live worrying about what the world might think or what the world might do, or how we are going to provide, or, or what we're going to try to do to control life around us. Jesus has conquered death, not by controlling life, by, by, but by subjecting himself to it. The world threw its worst at him, and he rose. And so we come to the wise men. Right? We sort of overlooked them up to this point. I think about the wise men for a minute. What's the difference between the wise men and Herod? There are lots of differences, right? I mean, they're they're Gentiles. Herod, he's actually not quite a Jew, but he's an Idumean, but he's close, right? Um, uh, He's a king. They're actually not. Three kings. They're wise men. Uh, They're magi. Um, Interestingly, one difference is not belief. You know, we hinge everything in Christianity on faith, and rightly understood that's true, Uh, But belief is not what distinguishes Herod from the wise men. Uh, Think about that. Did you notice that uh, that Herod actually believes the scriptures? He he calls in verse 3 the chief priests and the scribes to find out where the Christ would be born. He has no question that the Christ would be born. He just wants to know where the Christ will be born. Herod believes the scriptures. He just doesn't like what they have to say. He believes in Jesus, that's why he's threatened. What about the wise men? They believe, too, but they come to worship. What what should be our response to this Jesus who comes in weakness, who submits himself to death in order to defeat death on our behalf? Our response to Jesus should be worship. When the wise men come, they recognize the worth, the value of Jesus. Jesus. They, they bow the knee to him. They recognize his authority. They adore his majesty. They put him above gold and frankincense and myrrh. They recognize that he is worthy of our gifts and our life. You know, the, the logic of the world is if, if I want to be exalted, I need to exalt myself. The way up is up, right? And, and I use my strengths, I use my assets to impress others, to gain control, and to try to climb the ladder of life. But the logic of the gospel is just the opposite. If anyone wants to be great, he must become a servant. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. This is what Jesus did, isn't it? Though he was equal with the Father, he humbled himself by becoming a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, according to Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself. So God exalted him. He took the form of a servant as a weak and vulnerable human baby. And God sent the wise men to bow their knees to him as a testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. The, the, the question, there are lots of questions for us. The, the, one of the questions for us is this. Are we going to live our lives by the rules of the kingdoms of this world, or are we going to bow our knee to Jesus? Am I going to use my strengths to try to get ahead in life, uh, to, to manipulate the world around me, to try to get ahead vocationally or socially or politically, whatever? To, am I going to try to build the kingdom of me? Is that what I'm going to use my strengths for? Or am I going to follow Jesus? By worshiping him for dying and rising for me. Yes, using my strengths for his glory in whatever field he might call me to. But also serving others out of my weakness. Knowing that he will exalt us at the proper time. The power of death has been done away with. The kingdoms of this world have been disarmed in the resurrection of Jesus. Let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you that um, though in this world we, we feel often threatened and often weak and often worried and afraid and scared, yet Jesus came into the world in weakness to defeat death so that we no longer need to fear, so that whatever this world might throw at us, In him we know that this world doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. But we will rise to be with him on that last day. Father, give us hope in that day. Help us to long for that day. And help us to live now in light of that day as citizens of the world to come. Living not uh, by the principles of this world, but living by the principles of the kingdom of Jesus. To your glory and honor, give us your spirit that that might be so.